thought, I was like, man, I wish I had podcasts with my other friends. <laughs> and I thought, you know what I could do instead? <laughs> <laughs> that thought was peak millennial, by the way. I but know, go on. I was like, I could just call them on the phone. <laughs> Hello, listeners, and welcome to Dear Reader, a podcast about friendship and books. I'm one half of your hosting team, Michael. Hello, I'm Emily. And yeah, every month or so we get together and we just catch up on what's been happening with each other. And then we talk about the most interesting thing we've read in the last month. And uh, I am coming up to the end of my bodybuilding competition thing. That's 13 days away. That's And soon. it's, it's okay. super soon and it's getting super hard. <laughs> I wanted to throw something out there um, just to have it said now and cut this out if you want to or whatever, but you spoke on Instagram recently about pushing people away and lashing out and stuff like that. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you, and this is not to criticize what you're doing or anything like that. It's just say that yeah. is often a sign, you know, of low blood sugar, being hungry. Yeah. I know that sounds like mm -hmm. cliched, but um <laughs> No. Like when I was doing some readings about anorexia way, way back, they were talking about how one of the reasons they become so secretive and isolated is because they get these, you know, very reactive emotional responses yeah. in their hunger. Now, that's not to say, you know, yeah. you're doing the wrong thing. You know what I mean? I'm not being judgy. I just want yeah. a couple of weeks. Yeah. You might not be and, feeling I mean, this way. <laughs> I hope. Uh, yeah. And I, I have been feeling a lot better in the last week or so. I will say without getting into too much detail, that particular bout of unhappiness and self-pity and so forth it was brought along by some drama with a particular person who might still be a friend or might be an ex-friend okay. i don't know yeah i extended an olive branch a couple of days ago and it hasn't been picked up yet but um i i was feeling pretty miserable because we had kind of a, a a nuclear level falling out and i tend to blame myself when these things happen yeah do you mind if i ask what it's about um, like, if you don't want to talk about it, it's fine. It's just... No, no, it's okay. We have very different communication styles. Okay. And um, that's the quickest and easiest way to say it. And basically, over the course of a few years, um, various instances where we just failed to understand each other oh, have created that. sort of built building up resentment. And oh, yes. So it kind of sucks. But I, I had a I seriously like... I was driving and I was like completely in emotional turmoil over yeah. this. And I sort of had the thought, what would Dorothea do? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not a bad thought to have. Mm -hmm. I, I had spent an awful night the night before just being like consumed with negative feelings about this. And I was like, well, she would go home and she would lie on the floor of her bedroom and cry all night. And then she would wake up in the morning and resolve to put aside her own selfish ego and do the thing that would make the situation best for everyone involved regardless of her own sort of selfish desires. So I was like, okay, all right, all right. I need to I need to unconditionally forgive this person. I need to understand that when they say something that's hurting me, they aren't meaning to do that. It's kind of like getting angry at a dog for biting you. Like, mm. it's like, okay, this is just the way they communicate in the world is at odds with the way that I receive communication from the world. I just need to remember they're not trying to be mean. 
this is just how they are. <laughs> so, so I, I, yeah, I, I extended the olive branch. It hasn't been picked up. I'm a little bit new eh, about that, but whatever. Well, something I've kind of come to mm -hmm. the realization about, um, and like, this is for me, this is not for everyone necessarily, mm -hmm. but I used to have a lot of friend drama. You may remember some of it mm -hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> you may have been in some of it. <laughs> sure. I, I, um, I think of that as kind of a function of that period of well, life. True. Most people I know did, but yeah. go on. But what I've kind of realized over the last few years is I don't need that many friends. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as deeply painful as it was times when friends have cut me out, which has happened. Mm -hmm. Um, I've come to realize that like, I have a couple of very close friends who really know me and understand my triggers and buttons and whatever else and vice versa. And so there's no pain or drama ever. Mm -hmm. And those are the people I want in my life. Yep. And if there's people... I'm just rubbing up against the wrong way, you know, they don't need to be friends with me necessarily, or I don't yep. need to be friends with them. And this isn't to tell you what to do in your situation. Yeah, It's just, and the idea of forgiveness is one I've kind of abandoned because it's hard to forgive someone who's hurt you. Mm -hmm. And I've, I saw a tweet once referring to forgiveness as a Catholic, as a Christian superstition. And I mean, I can't speak too much to other cultures, but it's like, yeah, like, Christianity maintains its power by forcing people to forget for to forgive their abusers. Mm -hmm. I don't want any part of that. Yep. The, idea, the idea put forward by this tweeter whose name escapes me is that, you know, you get to the point where you just don't care about them anymore. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, there's no reason this person you need to have any thoughts about this person. Like, don't beat yourself up trying to forgive them. So it's like the classic saying just flipped around. Forget, don't forgive. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just like, okay, you know, if there's somebody I'm not feeling like I'm getting along with, I just avoid that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, I, if I, when I was younger, I was desperate for as many friends I needed, you know, as I could have. And I wanted to have cool friends and like, mm -hmm. it's pathetic to say now, but you know. No, I mean, I felt the same way. Like I've, I've always had a desperate desire to be liked by a lot of people. <laughs> like, like when I was in law school, every morning I would start the day by checking how many friends I had on Facebook to make sure it hadn't gone down. And I was constantly comparing. But now I realize it's like I've got you and like Micah and Nicole and Mickey and Sarah and, and a few others like that. And it's like that's a wealth. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it might be like six people. Obviously my husband as well, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, a, but it's, it's a, in terms of the quality of friendship, it's unbelievably mm -hmm. rich. Well, sure. If you have six people who know you deeply and you're very comfortable with, and yeah. you just kind of have frictionless interactions with, that's it's quite valuable. Yeah. And it's, you know, if we go months without seeing each other, I mean, that's unfortunate, but we mm -hmm. can fall right back in. Um, although inspired by this podcast i have actually made a point of monthly conversations with my friends yeah well we were texting about this a little bit and i, yeah. I wanted to bring it up when we recorded because i i've i have been feeling quite isolated myself recently and chris was pointing out that like i do have a lot of friends i'm just not drawing on them as like a social resource it's like oh I know. like I've i am always... isolating myself i don't have to be isolated <laughs> I've always felt so bad. Mm -hmm. Like I was being like, oh, I'm bad at keeping touch with people if I don't see them every day. Like once you're out of that, you know, school world where you or see the person every day, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, oh, I'm so bad. But, you know, but then I was like, we started doing this. And um, around the same time, 
you know, on maternity leave, my friend, our friend Micah would come over regularly to watch Star Trek because mm-hmm. we were watching Discovery and, you know, sharing my password. And I was like, man, seeing Michael and Micah regularly has been great during this very difficult time. And I was like, and I actually had the dumb idea thought. I was like, man, I wish I had podcasts with my other friends. <laughs> and I thought, you know what I could do instead? <laughs> <laughs> that thought was peak millennial, by the way. I but know, go I was on. like, I could just call them on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> but what if we performed our friendship for an audience of 10 to 20? <laughs> and it was so dumb because and I had to like, of course, email them first with this concept because I know if I called any of them, they would assume someone had died. Oh, hell yes. Like I lost I lost a colleague this summer and I had to call a couple people and I was like, and as soon as I call, like they picked up the phone, they're like, what's going on? Are you OK? Because yeah. I don't call people. So yes, I emailed my friends, like Sarah and one or two, and I was like, I have an idea. Let's make phone dates. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, like, we're both old enough that when I was a teenager, uh, like, having like sort of big epic phone conversations with your friends was like a thing that you did. Yeah. I remember I used to watch TV, quote unquote, with my friends, like, if fr- like ironically, often the show Friends. You know, we'd call each other at 8.30 and pull the cord out in front of the TV and, like, be on the phone and while we're watching the show. Yeah. Social media lets us keep closer tabs on each other. Like, I feel like I pretty much know how you're doing every day mm-hmm. based on your Instagram or Twitter. <laughs> I, I am quite demonstrative on both of those. <laughs> sure. And that, no, fair enough. And yeah. I like that about it because I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. Michael's doing good. Or like, mm, maybe I should text Michael. Yeah. And, uh, but it's not an interaction the same way. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's like seeing them mm-hmm. and like, but it's not. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like a one on one conversation that you're having. Yeah. So yeah. I've been doing that lately and that's been good for my life. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, you know, like isolation is kind of like a symptom of our modern era. And it's great to remember that, you know, we can be proactive in addressing it. Like if we feel alone, we don't necessarily have to. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's so dumb. It's so dumb. (laughs) I literally was like, I was literally thinking, it's like, what could I, could I pitch a podcast with Sarah and Nicole and Micah about, maybe it could be about Star Trek or something. Or it's like, or I could just call them and talk about Star Trek. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have read Michael Crummy's The Innocents, which is his new novel. It is shortlisted for the Giller Prize. Michael Crumley, we've talked about him on this podcast a couple of times before. He's one of the most eminent Newfoundland writers currently producing work. He is just a gorgeous prose stylist. This book of his is a bit of a departure from his previous ones. His previous books have been like large-scale, epic, magical realist or historical fiction, or even his... Now, second to most recent one, which is contemporary and doesn't have those fantastical elements. It's still very ambitious and big in its scope. This is a small book. It's almost claustrophobic. It's dense. It feels like a black hole of a thing. It has an immense gravity to it. And when I give the premise, perhaps that will come clear as to why. So it's back to historical fiction. The date is unclear. The Beothic, who are the indigenous people of Newfoundland who went extinct in the 1820s, are still lurking around the minds of the settlers, and they think they're still alive. 
so I'm guessing like late 1700s, very early 1800s, but there's nothing to indicate any date more narrow than that. We have two main characters. There are a brother and a sister. There are 11 and 9 at the start of the book. The book begins with their mother dying. Their infant sister, who was about six months old, had died shortly before the book opened. The mother dies. The father, because it's the middle of winter, rows out and dumps her into the water because there's no way to dig a grave. The father dies a month or so later. Jesus. The brother and the sister are so unable to cope with this, they just let his body lie in the bed for days until the older brother eventually does for him what he had done for their mother. And as you can imagine, it's devastating. It is absolutely just a stab in the guts of an opening chapter. That's the first chapter. <laughs> That's the first chapter. Oh, this Jesus. all happens in the first seven or eight pages. Mm. And they basically, there's the two of them left. They know very little about the world. They're aware that there is another place called Mock Beggars at a decentish distance because a woman called Mary Orem uh, came to midwife the birth of their now deceased infant baby sister. And she stayed there for a couple of weeks. So Mary Orem is the only person who's not in their immediate family that they've ever met. And so they know Mock Beggars is over there somewhere and that there's, you know, there are it's it's a it's a village it probably has i don't know 100 people or something they have no idea they just know mock beggars people live there they're dimly aware of fogo island that's like the limit of their universe they don't know about america or england or ireland they don't even know where their people came from whether these i mean they speak english and knowing the history of newfoundland they must be some English or Irish or some mixture, but like they have no connection to the old country whatsoever. And they know practically nothing. Uh, the very la the very first chapter, it ends with a list of the things, the things that their parents basically armed them with to deal with this situation. I'll, I'll read it out here. They were left together in the cove then, with its dirt-floored stud tilt, with its garden of root vegetables and its scatter of outbuildings, with its looming circle of hills and rattling book and its view of the ocean's grey expanse beyond the harbour scaries. The cove was the heart and sum of all creation in their eyes, and they were alone there with the little knowledge of the world passed on haphazard and gleaned by chance. The ocean and the firmament and the sum of God's stars were created in seven days. Sun hounds prophecy coarse weather. The death of a horse is the life of a crow. You were never to sleep before the fire was doubted. The winter's flour and salt pork had to last till the first seals came in on the ice in March month. The dead reside in heaven, and heaven sits among the stars. Nothing below the ocean's surface lies still. Idleness is the root of all troubles. Their baby sister died an innocent, and sits at God's right hand and hears their prayers. Any creature on the earth or in the sea could be killed and eaten. A body must bear what can't be helped. And that's the end of the first chapter. Oh my god. It is so cruel, this book. It is so brutal. The thought I kept circling around as I read. Because they, they, they survive through a combination of 
good luck, although they certainly run into some terrible mm. bad luck along the way as well. But turns of good luck when they need it. And basically their own dog stubbornness to see it out. They don't want to abandon their family. They don't want to abandon their baby sister. They don't want to abandon their mother and father, even though they're dead. Mm -hmm. Like this is literally all they know is this cove. Yeah. And all they have is each other. And it's like, so they make a go of it. They last about seven or eight years. And that's when Holy the book ends. Jesus. And they don't die. They decide to move to Mockbeggar. They make a go of it. And it's hard, though. The thought I kept circling around is, and I know that this is an extreme case. And, like, it's very unlikely any of my direct ancestors had to deal with something as extreme as this. But, like, how the hell did my ancestors five or six generations ago survive this society even if you've got like a community of a dozen or so families it's, yeah it's hard to live here <laughs> it's it, the place... let alone two children oh this is like all oh. of my worst nightmares <laughs> yes because uh, you know i have two little boys and i I've live in constant fear of what would ever happen to them mm -hmm. you know in our modern city with lots of support if i yeah. did let alone. loving loving extended family who would take care of them let alone being alone somewhere oh my god it's it's ridiculous um but like newfoundland in this book is this monster of a place that kind of begrudges the humans who live on it like like the way that mites live on our eyebrows like it feels like the land could just shrug or the sea could just shrug at any moment and just obliterate you. And it does like you are constantly one bit of bad luck away from starving to death or freezing to death or drowning or being mauled by a bear. <laughs> like It's ridiculous. And, and like, it's not, I'm probably making it sound over the top. Yeah, I'm never reading this. <laughs> I love oh, Michael Crabby, but I'm never reading it. Maybe in 20 years' time. It's so good, though, Emily. We'll I have, yeah. I do have to say, like, obviously, if if this is like for for listeners who might share this similar triggers to what you have, yeah, give this a wide berth. It will absolutely wreck you. But if you think you can handle it, this is such a masterpiece. It is so deftly done. You're dealing with these extreme situations, but it is never overwrought. It's never overwritten. Um, it always feels proportionate. The characters are so incredibly deeply well drawn, and they better be because for a lot of the time, there's only two of them. Yeah. Um, and their relationship is remarkable because not only is it a book that's about the most intense brother sister bond you can imagine, both of them have to navigate puberty without. Mm any sex education like the girl gets her first period and she vaguely knows that every month she'll have a visitor that's as much as her mom told her yeah <laughs> and like she kind of has to deal with that on her own and the brother has to deal like with you know rising sexual desires and and these weird sex dreams he has which he has like no way of making sense of and like there is an element of incest in this book, and I don't want it to come across like it's sensational or like this is the selling point. Well, no, it's just that, you know, they're the only experience they have of each other. I yeah. Suppose. Two teenagers who are deeply confused, have had no education whatsoever, 
Like, I mean, the girl thinks that people are just born either knowing how to read or not knowing how to read. Like, it's an innate skill. <laughs> and towards the end of the book, they have... Um, every now and again, visitors come by the cove unexpectedly because, like, their ship has, like, washed up there or, or something. Like, it happens, like, three times over the course of, like, the seven years or whatever. And towards the end, um, she is, is told that anyone can be taught how to read. And to her, this is a revelation. And when they decide to leave for mock beggars, she's like, do you think there's someone there who might be able to teach me how to read? But like, it is remarkable how little they know. She thinks that women get pregnant by wandering out. She was told that the Virgin Mary went berry picking in her bare feet and her feet got wet. And that's how she got <laughs> pregnant with the baby Jesus. So she thinks this is how babies happen. <laughs> Because so no one ever on. told her anything different. She's trying to piece it together from the very little she's ever been told. Yeah. Oh, it's so good, though. Like, yeah, oh, I believe you. Such a hard book and such an, I mean, it sounds over the top and it really isn't. <laughs> I was reading about and I, I went to the launch of this book and he, he told a version of this story. And then when I was reading an interview, he told us another version of the story. He got the idea when he was in the archives where you formerly worked and he came across a journal where someone who was traveling along the North shore in the late 18th century found an isolated cove that had like one shack in it. And he went ashore and there was a brother and sister there and the brother chased him off with a gun and the sister was clearly pregnant. And the journal writer believed that the brother was the father of the child that the sister was pregnant with and michael crummy basically agreed with this premise and he thought there's a book here and i don't want to be the one to write it it scared him and eventually he said that that was the sign that he had to do it was the fact that it scared him so yeah it's this toothy monster of an idea but it's based in like a historical document and it just it makes you think what other sort of monstrosities are sort of half buried in our history. Like, because this place was that we both come from was just so isolated yeah. and so hard and so deprived and people were placed in such extreme situations so regularly. There must be all kinds of things, wild things that happened that never got recorded of and course. that we are just sort of the unknowing inheritors of. It's just crazy. I love this book. It's <laughs> a book I would be very hesitant to recommend to someone based on the content. But if they think that they can handle it, I would say, yes, absolutely. Read it. I guess kind of like, um, oh, what's the name of the lady? She wrote Fall on Your Knees. Oh, my God. Yes. Anne-Marie MacDonald, I think. Yes. Sounds like... You it know, is book. similar to Fall on Your Knees, although Fall on Your Knees is that sort of like multi-generational, yeah. like epic set in Cape Breton. Yeah. But this uh, idea of like a, a hard story that's worth it kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a hard story that's worth it. And like I can remember I read Fall on Your Knees for my special fields, which was an exam I had to take during my PhD. That was sort of setting me up as an expert in Canadian literature, which was my subfield. And I can remember I finished it in a coffee shop on College Street here in Toronto. And I just started weeping openly in the coffee shop. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Some books are like that. Last time I wept in public over a book 
was Americana by an unpronounceable a name I can't begin to pronounce. I don't think I know that book. Oh, it is good. It's um, about a Nigerian immigrant to the U.S. And, um, you know, hard stuff. But the part that um, made me cry was um, the book described their hope and joy when Barack Obama was elected. Oh, oh yeah. And I read this during the election between Hillary and Trump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was so fun. That was the oddest thing. It's like what I was crying over wasn't even what was in the book, although that was very beautiful and moving. It was like what these fictional characters would feel if they could see what was happening now. Yeah. Oh, God. And if it was during the election, the worst was yet to come. I know. Oh, I don't want to go down that road right now. No, but let's anyway, not. I, I, I was on the Metro bus. It was a beautiful summer day. Mm-hmm. I was weeping. It's kind of a good feeling after, you know what I mean? Like oh, sure. Over a book. It's like when someone, I mean, I've, I've been an actor. I write. When someone tells me I've made them cry, I, I'm weirdly pleased by it. Like mm. it means the art was moving. Right. And like, it's a good thing. And I, I myself, this is going to sound weird. I love crying. <laughs> like, not over like real life things, but like if something makes me cry, like a, a movie or a book or whatever, I'm really grateful for it. Yes. I so know what you mean. I um, I've always been a crier, as you know, um, which is, has been frustrating times because like my crying manifests for happiness, sadness, anger, anything. But over the last year... Um, because of some stuff and some other stuff I don't want to get into, I haven't been able to cry. Mm. And it's been so awful because it's almost like when you want to throw up and you can't. Yeah. It's just like, you know, if you could just get it out, it feels so much better. So it's it's like, and then I get depressed about not being able to cry <laughs> so for being sad. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm generally doing much better, but the, <clears throat> and I have cried. I have cried twice in the last month, but they were just t- like one or two tears each. But I feel like, okay, it's coming back. So hope he, hope is here, but that I will never forget this experience of not being able to cry. Well, congratulations that your tears are coming back. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's such a weird thing. I mean, and it, it's gendered too. Like people of various genders get it in bad and different ways. Like men aren't supposed to cry, but when women cry, it sort of means that like they're seen as weak and not taken seriously. Like if you're a boss at work and you're a woman and you start to cry, that's no good. Well, that Um, was, yeah. Like I remember one time I had to have a really serious conversation with my boss and I was very angry and I was very right to be angry, but I couldn't help but cry. And then I felt like, and I was treated like, you know, a silly little girl. Yeah. And it's like, ah. Yeah. And I mean. I had another do over on that one. but. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not to go down that road, but there's no. so many conversations like Let's that where I'm like, if I had the strength and the wisdom I have now, back uh, then, I would have said something different. <laughs> yep. Of course, I wouldn't have been in that position in the first place. <laughs> Very fair. Mm-hmm. Do, do you want to talk about the poor orphans in like rural Newfoundland some more? Yeah, let's do that. Let's <laughs> cheer yeah, um, uh. yeah. We we both love Michael Crummy, and he thinking about emotional catharsis, and his books are really remarkable for a number of ways. And I can't think of a way to say this that doesn't sound corny, but like they always ring emotionally true to me. 
Yes. Well, no, I, I, it makes sense because like the what you were just like, there's plenty of books out there mm-hmm. that just pile on the tragedy or whatever. Yeah. Um, but and this from, you know, bare bones description might sound like that, but it's it's not. Yeah. Because you believe it. Now, of course, you and I, you just have to look at the hills to know how hard it must have been. <laughs> Absolutely. I read a review for this book that was in um Oh, one, some, one of the big papers out of New York. I can't remember which one, but a major one. And I, I guess because Michael Crummy has had some notice from American uh, press over the last couple of books of his. And they got it. I was so happy. It's yeah. so unusual for a book that is as deeply steeped in Newfoundland as this one. For someone who's not from here to sort of be able to grasp the deeper nature of it and this right. reviewer absolutely got it and it was great it made me really happy to read um but yeah it's it's a rough place but you know the real tragedy of the book is like the brother and the sister have each other and for the first couple of years they absolutely 100 percent depend on each other and they are each other's comfort and they are each other's strength and puberty becomes this kind of isolating experience for both of them mm-hmm, and it's different yeah and and they start to f- uh who's older uh the brother is older by two years so he's 11 yeah okay. so it's basically 11 and 9 up to about 18 and 16 and mm-hmm. like they they begin to resent each other they begin to argue uh but i think it all comes back down to that they are each having these very upsetting experiences of being in their own bodies as they change without being able to make sense of them and without feeling like they can share it with the only other person they have. But this person, you know, imagine having someone that you had this most intimate connection with this person who is like your other self, who like you rely on wholly 100%. They're all of your world. And then something weird starts happening to you and you, you feel like you can't share it with them. Honestly, I can kind of relate a bit to my own relationship. I mean, not that mm-hmm. with my brother, not that it is in any way like that, but you know, I remember those years, like we were always close as kids, we're close now, but those puberty years where it's like things are getting weird, we were definitely more separated from each other. Um, and we got on each other's nerves a lot, partly cuz, you know, uh, anyone's going to get on a 13-year-old girl's nerve and vice <laughs> especially her younger brother and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But yeah, no, it it is um puberty is isolating I think for everyone and it does stick a wedge between brothers and sisters. I don't know if Michael Crummy has a sister, maybe he even had a touch of that too. Yeah. And again, not to say like it's I this is uh, your story is obviously very extreme. This mm-hmm. was much smaller. In a smaller way it was like, ugh, you know, I don't want my little brother to see my bra, you know, like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Just little things. Think, you know, we used to have think nothing of like running in and out of each other's rooms and all of a sudden I locked the door and he got mad. And yep, yep. No, and, and this is kind of the, the interesting thing that you have this ex- story that in some ways is so incredibly removed from our modern experiences. But yet you can sort of relate to what is in there. Because uh, it's like, yeah, like in some ways things haven't changed. Brothers and sisters, particularly when they're close will go through some weirdness when they're in their teen years. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I imagine brothers probably do too, although slightly differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's just, you don't want to talk about that with your family members. Um, the interviewer at the book launch was a woman. 
God help me, I don't remember who she was. <laughs> However, she was praising the book for saying that it had just a really accurate and pitched perfectly, perfectly described um, experience of female puberty. And oh. he, she asked him, how did you write that since you never had those experiences? And he, he gave a good answer. Um, I don't remember it well enough to replicate it here. But um, apparently, someone who would know says that he did a good <laughs> job. But for the male side of things, he absolutely did. Um, so once in the spring and once in the fall, a ship pulls up offshore and they row out in the spring to get their supplies and in the fall to deliver all the fish they've cured and to get their supplies for the winter which are more or less generous depending on how much fish and the quality of the cure. So some years it's very lean and they don't know how they're going to get through the winter at all. And other years it's better. Um, so this is like their one contact with the outside world. And the brother goes out by himself because it was always their mm -hmm. father's job. The, yeah. the mother would stay at home and the father would go out, go out alone and he'd come back kind of drunk because after he deals with the merchant's representative on the ship, the sailors give him some rum and they sing songs and whatever. So it's this weird sort of twice a year encounter with masculine society that the little boy has. The representative of the merchant is a man that they call the Beetle. They don't even know his name because that's just what their father always called him. He's this Dickensian Methodist type who tries to use the, his power over them to blackmail them into converting from Catholic. Well, they, they're not anything, they're, but their family like is, was nominally Catholic. And he basically tries to blackmail them into joining his religion. And that doesn't quite work. They, uh, and it, it gets dropped after a while. But he's he's clearly very stern and disapproving. And um, it's a great sort of awakening the first time the, the brother goes out to the system of indentured labor through mm -hmm. which most Newfoundlanders worked back then. People were just perpetually in... Um, indebted to the merchant who controlled whatever stretch of shore they happened to live on and you would never climb out of debt so you would give them all of the goods you produced and they would give you supplies and it was such that you were always behind you were oh, always yeah. well, in the they, red you were never in the black they set the prices for both so they mm -hmm. just made absolutely and when the brother sort of first realizes that he sees their names in the little book and he realize he, he feels like the book is a cage and they are in that cage and they will never escape from that cage. And that is the situation of Newfoundland in the 19th century or the 18th century, 100%. Or the 20th or the 21st. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. But anyways, he's this yep. like grim Dickensian figure. And when the brother starts having his sort of sexual awakening, the first sort of sex dreams he has, he's imagining that he's back on the boat and the, the beetle is like going over the books, but he's standing there naked and he, the beetle is sort of reaching out and fondling him with his free hand, which is not something that happens, but this is sort of what his brain is f like feeding him. And he wakes up like with an erection and he does not have any means of understanding what the fuck is happening to him. And as time goes on, the sort of dreams he has begin to sort of shape and morph and when he first encounters an adult woman, she features in them. But then he has dreams where he's imagining the beetle and this adult woman like having sex in front of him and he's watching. And, and like basically really weird and graphic 
and inexplicable images which aren't erotic and yet turn him on and it's upsetting to him and like not to sort of be too tmi that's male puberty <laughs> like you're turned on and you don't know why and you don't think it's fun <laughs> so do you think he's not do you think he's gay or no no just that is a human being he knew yeah i, okay. I think Different men will say different things, and I am gay, so I don't know. Maybe my experience is not representative of the more typical one. But my feeling is that for a lot of men, if if they can if they can muster up the honesty and the clarity of of self-reflection, will sort of realize that their libido came online before their sexual orientation did. <laughs> And that it just sort of spun wildly like a compass trying to find north for a little while. <laughs> At least that's my okay. sense of things. It's interesting because I had a bit of a revelation about my, I'm not sure if it's, I mean, well, kind of my own sexuality recently. Because I've always kind of maintained that every, like, I can't imagine not being bisexual, like, people aren't to some extent bisexual, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, sexuality is a spectrum. I very much prefer men as do you, but, you know, but then I realized that, and like you always, you have this thing a lot where a famous celebrity, a female celebrity will come out as bisexual after she's securely married to a man or something like that. And then I was wondering if it's simply a matter that women are so constantly presented with sexualized versions of themselves. You know, women are more sexualized than men in media, in the world, that maybe it's just becomes almost second nature for a woman to for everyone to see women as sexual and men as less so <laughs> i mean I, I can remember when i was younger like in college years i used to be like oh sexuality is fluid and la-di-da and, and i used to sort of be like oh may i'm mostly gay but maybe sometimes not and over the years i should be like no i'm a i'm a full six on the kinsey scale <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to take away from anyone's feelings or experience, but I was like, nah, we're yeah. all the same in the dark or something. But no, I, I'm sure some people feel more strongly about it than I do. I mean, I don't even think it's possible. I think it's true that our identities aren't fixed and what you feel now might not be what you feel 10 years from now. So, yeah. I've decided to talk about the funny one. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Because that sounds like it'll be a good tonal balance. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I will say that Normal People mm -hmm. by Sarah Rooney is a fabulous book and mm -hmm. uh, not nearly as sad as yours, but, okay. you know. A <laughs> few things are. <laughs> <laughs> but today I am going to talk about French Exit by Patrick DeWitt, mm. another Canadian. That name is familiar. You know him from... Um, he wrote The Sisters Brothers ah, yes. in 2011, which was a pretty big-ass book back then. Mm -hmm. This one is a smaller book. Um, definitely made less of an impact. I didn't even realize it was him um, when I picked it up. Um, it's really funny. Yeah. It's really strange. Um, the New Yorker review called it um, stealth absurdism. <laughs> Which well, I like, I like that. Isn't that fun? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> My voice just went weird. Anyway, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this book—it's a short book. It's quick. It's funny and a brutal. Well, not brutal. I, I want to be careful about my use of the word brutal after your book <laughs> in a hard kind of way. It's about this 
absurdly wealthy uh, New York woman. She's 65. She's a socialite. She's infamous because when she discovered her husband's body, uh, she went skiing for the weekend and didn't <laughs> tell anybody. <laughs> and she's got a large son who's um, kind of dumb and kind of pointless. He has no abilities or skills and he no pretend he doesn't really pretend to either like he's not one of these like rich sons who's like yes i'm going to be ceo of a company or whatever he's just mm. like nah, i'm just gonna follow my mom to whatever parties she's going to <laughs> and they have a cat named small frank yeah <laughs> so um, a large son and a small frank okay <laughs> yeah uh, small frank uh it's important to note that uh the husband who who died was named frank as well uh. The story picks up when they are out of money and neither are at all capable of being without money. So what they decide to do is sell everything they have, everything that's not nailed down basically because they, um, you know, they owe everything to the government. It's going to be repossessed. And so they sit, set off on a cruise ship with $200,000 to Paris where they're going to stay at a friend's apartment. Mm-hmm. And... It becomes clear pretty early that Frances, that's the the mother, has decided to blow out the money as fast as she possibly can. Okay. While they're in Paris, they sort of kind of collect people around them. Um, They find another American woman who who secretly moves into their apartment and just doesn't tell them. Uh, They know. They figure out that she's – like they know she's done it, but they just decide not to deal with that. Um, They get a private detective. They have a medium there. who else comes over? Oh, yeah. And uh, the son's – what? Malcolm. What's the – Malcolm. Malcolm's fiance and her new boyfriend join them as well. It's um, it's Oscar Wildean. I wish – I'd return this to the library. The, the, the speech is so good. Mm-hmm. I read so much of this out to Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those books where you're like every, every five minutes you're like, oh, and you have to read the bit out loud. Yeah. Okay, well, here's one I'm in the New Yorker review I opened that they the reviewer picked up. So um, Francis is talking to um, Madame Renard, who's the American woman. And Madame Renard says, do you know he died in that very cha- chair? What did he choke on? She asked. Ah, lamb. And have you eaten lamb since? No, but you know, I never liked lamb much in the first place. It's that kind of book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my favorite line is when Francis suddenly realizes and says to Malcolm, the fucked witch is connected to small Frank. <laughs> and this is a spoiler, but it's it's you kind of suspect it early on. The dead husband is possessing the cat. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> So Big Frank got into Small Frank. Okay. Yeah. And that's he, – he, the cat showed up um, when Frank died. He was sitting on the cat's chest. The cat was sitting on the corpse's chest, which is why she took off for the skiing weekend. Like, they hated each other. It was a terrible marriage. But the cat stays with them, and they stay with the cat until they reach Paris, and Small Frank realizes that she's blowing all her money because she plans to murder suicide them. Like she's mm. going to kill the cat and herself. Mm. Um, and then the Frank, t- and then so small Frank takes off to the streets of Paris where he doesn't do very well as a, you know, former billionaire, now a cat. Um, but they use the, they, they, 
find a medium they met on a cruise ship who had had sex with Malcolm to contact Small Frank. And in the, the most amazing conversation, <laughs> <laughs> they, they ask him, why did he run away? And he's like, because you're going to kill me. <laughs> and I'd rather be a cat than dead. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's, they're so snarky. I mean, we're, we're talking about a dead person inside a cat talking to his wife that he hates. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good. And there's, there's this fabulous Madame Reynard, the American. She has so much joy in all of this. Like, she's just like, it's all bonkers, of course. But she's so happy to be around something so exciting and strange. <laughs> yes. I think that's why she moves in. Yeah, of course, French exit is what they used to call ghosting. Um, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, French. Well, it's kind of French exit. I've all, I'm more familiar with the Irish exit, mm. um, which is, you know, when you leave a party about saying goodbye. Yes. And I think French exit is similar, just from like a different region, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, our, our our cultural stereotypes about Irish and French people, just apply them. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it's kind of the idea of like, okay, it disappears. But um, man, this book, this book. <laughs> I'm very curious. Um, <laughs> so, like, this is by um, Patrick DeWitt, mm -hmm. Sisters Brothers, yeah. which I think also was kind of funny. Um, I didn't read it. but Yeah, I yeah. read it. I didn't find it funny, but I think maybe I didn't get it. I, I seem to, like, I think that was its reputation, was that it was kind of supposed to be, at least. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, this is clearly more of a, like, upper class... What, like, is it set in contemporary times or yeah. is it certain? Okay. All it, right. They are very old fashioned. They're out of time. Like, yeah. they, they decide to take a cruise ship across. Like, they want to book an ocean liner across the, mm -hmm. to go travel from New York to Paris. But of course, there are no ocean liners. So they wind up taking a transatlantic cruise. <laughs> and it's like, just, and they hate it because <laughs> they're not cruise people. Right. But it's like course. the idea of maybe taking a plane never presents. Cruises are very new money. So. Yeah. <laughs> And these so, people don't sound like new money. No, not at all. Like I said, they're they're complete. Like Malcolm, especially, is just mm -hmm. completely incapable of anything useful, and doesn't even try. I'm finding. Enough, I'm I'm looking for quotes because there's so many I want to share <laughs> that I don't have. But she says that it's fun to run from one brightly burning disaster to the next, and she del delights in implied insults and needling insinuations. So, um. There's a couple of things I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with Archie and Mahitabel? No. They are... Hold on a second. The reason I'm thinking about it is um, because Archie is a cockroach who can operate a typewriter by hitting one key at a time. And Mahitabel is an alley cat. And there's a poem that I really like that's called The Song of Mahitabel, which is written by Archie. And this is the song of Mahitabel, of Mahitabel the alley cat. As I wrote you before, boss, Mahitabel is a believer in the Pythagorean theory of the transmigration of the soul. And she claims that formerly her spirit was incarnated in the body of Cleopatra. That was a long time ago, and one must not be surprised if Mahitabel has forgotten some of her more regal manners. <laughs> so if I'm thinking about an alley cat in like Paris, I'm thinking about that alley cat yeah um but it's similar like it's very lighthearted. it's very funny um it, it's got the slight tinge of tragedy which can make comedy 
all the sharper. Yeah, this is actually um, apparently called a tragedy of manners <laughs> in some of the like promotional materials. Oh, well, I mean, I mean, obviously, like there is death in it and whatnot, but mm-hmm. it seems there's a to... lot of death actually. Oh, at one yeah. point they visit because yeah, the cruise ship is full of old people. And so at one point, Malcolm visits the morgue and the, the coroner is all like, yeah, we lose about one a day down here. And I've heard that about cruise ships. <laughs> yeah, because they just have a lot of older people, mm-hmm. um, which is sad, of course. But it's yeah, you've, you feel like there's death is all around them all the time. Mm. But how, how would you feel that a tragedy of manners would differ from like a black comedy? Hmm. I guess it's. Honestly, class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of what I uh, what I was guessing might be yeah, the case. It, it, it's set amongst the uber rich, the high, the snotty um, New Yorkers. Um, you know, Francis hates Malcolm's fiance because she ordered gazpacho out of season. <laughs> so. <laughs> so people who are very mannered and are kind of prisoners exactly. to like their very particular way of being yeah like they managed to leave new york with two hundred thousand dollars no and they're you know they're 65 and 35 and both in good health there's officially no reason why they like life is over now (laughs) they can Mm -hmm. start over but neither one of them really has any conception of that like the malcolm when he moves to paris he literally spends all day every day watching the little camp town of refugees in the park outside the window. He just sits there and watches them. Mm. And for a very long time, eventually he gets a bicycle. Like for Christmas, Francis buys him a bicycle because it's the funniest thing she can think of. (laughs) (laughs) And then he starts riding his bike around for a while. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. But I mean, yeah, like looking at those refugee encampments, People for whom like two hundred thousand dollars would be an utterly life changing sum. You know? Well, this is it. Like she's at at, tor- at at first she's just over tipping and overspending, but after a while she just starts handing out bills to people around. Oh wow! Wow. Yeah, it's it, there's an interesting moment because she gives some some of cash to like there, there's a fight that breaks out between two factions. I guess we only see this group like through the window. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they fight and the police come in and um, some are more injured than others. Like nobody's like deathly injured, but she comes across one of the instigators a few days later and he's all bruised and beaten up. And she gives him a big chunk of cash and he takes out something like two or three bills of it and hands it back Mm. because he doesn't need that much. Yeah. He's like, I'll take, you know, he'll take what he needs. But and this is not to say he's like, you know, some saintly. No, but it's just like, this is what I want right now. Yeah. And I mean, like, not to sort of reveal my own financial history too greatly, but like I have had a range of lifestyles and incomes. And like, when you are used to getting by on like $18,000 a year, the idea of like, having a vast sum of money it's sort of like it's intoxicating, I guess, but it's sort of like, well, what, what, what would you even do? It's like, well, I know. Like, well, that's like what, and the opposite, I guess, is true because that's what you know, mm-hmm. Bill Gates and his ilk, yeah. Jeff Bezos, are like, geez, what, you know, what, what do I do if I have to pay taxes now? It's yeah, like, well, well you still have unimaginable wealth. <laughs> yeah, it's the Arrested Development thing uh, with, um, oh, it's a banana, Michael. What could it cost? Ten dollars. <laughs> Like, the, it's like there are people that live on less than a hundred billion. What? Yes, 
It's like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're making $400,000 a year and we are struggling to get by. It's like, well, something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> You, you can get by on 10% of that if you have to. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, my. So clearly it's about manners and clearly mm. also it's about money. Yes. Money is obviously a big part. And that's something that's fun because I've always enjoyed um, these rich people problems kind of books. Mm-hmm. Um, originally from like an aspirational sort of place. Yeah. But as I've gotten older, it's almost like... Especially the last year or two, I've, I've really turned against the rich. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fair. <laughs> this is great because it it it's so it's so it it has the fun of their life, but also totally skewers them. Mm-hmm. Like in their in their total uselessness, their hopelessness. Their... They're like very powerful babies. The rich are. <laughs> yeah, basically. And then you, Francis, the mom, definitely, you know, was once a capable woman, and probably would still be a capable woman. Mm-hmm. She just decided not to be. Well, I guess, I mean, I haven't read the book, so you can, you can correct me, but my sense there is kind of like, if you have been like a striver who had to work for things and didn't have a lot, and then you sort of, you know, got yourself in a position where you're very comfortable and you got used to a life of luxury and you're 65, you'd be like, you know what? I'd rather just die than go back yeah. to the way it was. Like, Yeah, that makes sense. And, yeah. and of course, Malcolm has the opposite feeling. Like Malcolm is more like... He doesn't even know what to expect from poverty. Like he he can't he he doesn't seem to have the foresight to think that far. Yeah, he's like, okay, we're going to Paris now, and we have less money. Mom says, and but he doesn't actually spend that much. In fact, he steals a lot. Yeah. <laughs> he's a bit of a kleptomaniac. Mm. Um, not for things he wants or needs, just you know, trinkets around. Well, the very rich are really messed up. Because they don't really have anything to stop them from doing what they want. Mm -hmm. But also they get very bored. And like I've read stories, both fictional and non-fictional, about like what the mega mega rich, I'm talking like billionaires, what they do just to sort of have some kind of meaning or entertainment in their life. It makes me think about vampires who have like lived for like 400 years and they're just bored of everything. So like they just have like the weirdest, most fucked up sex because that's the only thing that's left. Well, I mean, (laughs) look at the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) dark, but true. Yeah. You know, he, they, he, he serviced the super rich who were super bored and getting whatever they wanted. If you feel that you're not answerable to anyone and that like, why the hell would I go on another ski vacation to the Alps? I've done that 20 times. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the first time I really had this feeling, I remember once I was, I think I was 10. Mm-hmm. And there was a girl in my class who rolled her eyes and was like, oh, we go to Disney World every year. I'd like oh to my try to God. Quiz. And I'm like, I, I nearly, I don't think I ever felt that kind of rage before. <laughs> I felt it since. <laughs> but I was like, yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. That was such a bitchy power move on that girl's yeah, part. Yeah. In retrospect, she was probably bragging. But oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm at sure At the time, of it. I was very much like, she's literally bored of Disney World. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm taking my kids to Disney World. I don't care if it bankrupts me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I mean... Don't go bankrupt, but like, no. yes, give give your give your children experiences that you can afford to give them. Be also, generous with that. I think that's important. I really want to go to Disney World. Still. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. Well, this is kind of like well, I mean, I've never been to Disney World, but like, like I love going to Las Vegas because it's like you know what? 
this is a place that's designed to be enjoyable and yes. it's really good at it. Like Exactly. Like, you know, a while ago, Andrew, like we're trying to plan a trip because we really want to get away for a bit. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at, you know, what cities are kid friendly and what have and still cultural and shit. And, yeah. like, and eventually we're like, you know what? Screw the cultural bit. Let's go to a resort that has, you know, childcare built in that mm-hmm. has waiters that come to the beach. Yep. You know, that has a spa. Let's just let's just lie down for a while. <laughs> There's something delightful about a swim up bar. I'll just say that. I've always wanted to swim up to a bar. <laughs> Someday. My dreams are so small. <laughs> yeah, but I mean look what happens when your dreams like mm. when you when you when you don't have dreams anymore. Because that's the super riches condition is like they have achieved everything they could possibly conceive of, and there is nothing left to give life meaning or pleasure. So, yeah, we're watching, so they hatch a murder-suicide pact. <laughs> we're watching this show now, Succession. It's incredible. Like, one of those really just brilliant HBO shows. So funny. Like, it plays like a tense family drama, but it's it's actually a secretly a comedy. Yeah. Um, but it is this situation where, like, there's this billionaire, like this aging billionaire and his son fighting for control of the company. And at every, at least once an episode, we say to each other, they don't have to do any of this. <laughs> you don't have to have a job. Mm-hmm. You can just be. <laughs> so, yeah. So I want to know about Patrick DeWitt. You said that you didn't even sort of realize that this book was by him. So there's like, cause sisters brothers was a big deal. So, like, there's no buzz around this? Because I know you pay attention to these things yeah, more than I do. Yeah, there was a book in between that didn't mm-hmm. do as well. Oh, geez, French Exit was shortlisted for The Giller. Hmm. That's weird. I, I, I didn't pay attention to The Giller for four or five years there. So. Yeah, but it came out, like, this year. Oh, oh. That's I mean, it's on this put, shortlist? Uh, no, 2018. Okay, all right, last all year. right. Um, yeah, okay, maybe it made more of a splash than I thought. That's probably why I put it on... But yeah, like I, cause you know what I do. I think of a, I hear about a book, I put it on hold at the library and then I forget. (laughs) There's been a couple of books that we've talked about on this (laughs) podcast where you're like, I don't remember how I heard about this book, but I I put it on hold at the library and I'm glad I did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Between Sisters Brothers and French Exit, there's something called Under Major Domo Minor in 2015 and that doesn't even have its own Wikipedia page. Ah, yes. So. So probably performed less so. And Sisters Brothers was 2011, so it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. So even though this is very good, it probably made a different kind of hit. Although, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, thinking about like, so The Innocence, Michael Crumley's novel that I spoke about is his fifth novel. And like, it's a bit difficult, even if you do have, Sisters Brothers was his debut, right? No, there's one before called Evolutions, but I don't. Yeah. I mean, who knows? No, probably well, nobody read that. Maybe in that case, what I was about to say isn't isn't the case then. Because I was just thinking about how even if you do have like a big book, it can be hard to sort of spin that into a career. Mm-hmm. Like you need to sort of have consistent returns. And, and Michael Crummy has done that. Like yeah. pretty much his second novel, like sort of passed by without that much notice. But his first, third, fourth, and now fifth have yeah. all been shortlisted Huge. or won major awards, um, have been like bestsellers. 
so like he's he's probably in like he's probably a career novelist if he wants to be now like mm-hmm. he doesn't think, have to stop i think he actually i think he doesn't have a job if that's what you mean yeah yeah which is <laughs> rare in canada yeah. like there right, aren't a lot of people who can make their full-time living at writing especially at novels like i know one or two other newfoundland writers who do but like they write a lot of stuff like they're yeah. writing articles they're writing yeah all kinds of things plays and things this was um this was really really good yeah <laughs> It, the ending was kind of, I don't know how to put it. Um, I don't think there could be a good ending for the create. You know what I mean? Like you don't mm. want them to live happily ever after. You don't want them to not live happily ever after. Yeah. So. How do you feel about endings like that? Where like there's no real sort of resolution. They just kind of. Sometimes. Well, they, they, they do an Irish. Well, they do a French exit. <laughs> sometimes I like it. This was actually the other problem I had with. I had the same problem with the other book I was going to talk about. Um, this unresolved ending. Now, in this case, there was a resolution. Um, if if we're doing spoilers, she, she does succeed in killing herself. Mm. Um, and Malcolm gets back with his rich fiance. So he's going to be fine. He'll ha- he found another woman to take care of him. <laughs> I was going to say, clearly he needs like a guiding <laughs> female presence in his life from what you've told of me. Yes. Some men just cannot be alone. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but yeah, and I was kind of, I kind of had mixed feelings about that, mm. you know, because I didn't want Francis to die. Um, there's a line, oh, I wish I could remember it, but Malcolm, Malcolm was disappointed in her suicide as well which is a bit of a strange saying like because he was her son of course so yeah it should be more grief but he called her a joiner hmm. when, when she did her suit when she did her suit when she committed suicide <laughs> i guess he expected her to do be a little more spectacular than that because hmm. she and she is a very well-drawn character a lot of these characters in this book are fairly two-dimensional they're just sort of around, but but Francis is very interesting and real. So would you say that this is kind of a portrait of like a somewhat odd, wealthy woman who's made a unusual decision near the end of her life? Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of my take on it from the information you've laid down for me. Yeah. It, like it sounds, it sounds like absolutely Francis, which by the way, Frank, like big Frank, yeah. little Frank and Francis. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. But like, it sounds to me like Francis is kind of the center of gravity of the book. Definitely. Like she, Malcolm just follows trails after her everywhere mm-hmm. anyway. Like the first time we, the opening of a party's, the opening chapter, they're at a party they don't want to be at. And, um, you know, Francis is making small talk and my baby woke up, so I need to go. (laughs) Well, Um, we, we got, we basically got an episode here. We talked a lot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You, you finish off. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, while Emily soothes her baby, I will bid you adieu, dear listeners. Thank you for joining us on Dear Reader. I am Michael. We have just heard from Emily. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's been, well, I've had a lot of fun. I hope you have too. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at reader at megaphonic.fm. And we have a Patreon for the network where you can support this show and others like it, Patreon.com 
patreon.com slash megaphonic megaphonic.com slash patreon they both lead you to the same place for you know a couple of bucks a month you can feel good about supporting content creators like ourselves but you'll also get some bonus things like access to a slack where we share cute cat pictures and talk about movies and tv shows and just hang out or a bonus material that we put on a Patreon feed. So outtakes from various episodes, things that were funny but didn't quite fit, all that stuff. I'm rambling now. The theme music is going to end soon. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Insert banter here.